Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome to the Concept Creation Podcast. Welcome to this episode. I'm so glad you're back with me today. And on this episode, I am privileged to talk to Dr. Harry Vach. He earned his PhD in chemistry from Johns Hopkins University here in the United States back in 2002. And he began his career at Zestron America's headquarters, uh, where he took over that, I don't know, branch is the right word, we'll call it a branch, uh, and um, uh, reported to his father, Oskar Vach, back in Germany. We're going to discuss uh, with Harry, uh, as he prefers to be called, uh, his journey with uh, Zestron, starting off with running the American uh, unit and then uh, eventually taking over the entire company. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Harry Vach. Thanks for being here today, Harry. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. You and I have known each other for quite a few years. We both are in the same industry. Uh, you're, you're on the juice side, me on the mechanical side. Um, yes. And uh, we have, uh, therefore, the same customer. So we're, I'm quite familiar with what uh, Zestron does, although I'm not familiar with how you got to what you do, which is the whole purpose of this, of this podcast. So let's bring our audience up to date. For those um, people who are way outside of our industry and don't already know who Zestron is, uh, let our audience know uh, what Zestron does, uh, where you're located, and just give a, you know, the, uh, the elevator pitch on, on Zestron, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, well, uh, we are in the um, specialty chemical uh, business. Um, we've um, worked uh, on uh, making a name for ourselves and cleaning circuit boards. Uh, that's what it, um, what the beginning was, and, and to a large extent, it still is. Um, meanwhile, we're sort of a um, elaborated uh, service provider for the industry when it comes to reliability, um, focusing around uh, cleaning for one part, for many other problem-solving aspects as well. Um, but in the end, uh, a large part of our business is still um, supporting cleaning processes, um, be it from the um, front end to the back end, uh, anywhere where electronics are integrated, um, we try to add value by introducing and in including cleaning, which uh, serves the simple purpose of um, increasing reliability um, and ensuring a higher quality, um, be it for the purpose of subsequent processes, wire bonding or, or coding um, or others, uh, or simply just uh, removing um, contamination to um, reduce fa failure on the board be due to environment or moisture or, or other factors. Um, so our product, you don't necessarily see after the um, manufacturing, but you know it's cleaned um, based on various analytical methods we offer to our customers and we serve them in terms of uh, services afterwards. But um, in the end, uh, we help add value. Um, and um, like you said before, Mike, um, you are one of the leading providers in, in um, mechanical support in, in the cleaning equipment. Uh, we are uh, one of the leading, if not the leading provider uh, globally in uh, terms of uh, the product goes into the cleaning machine. And um, 
at the end. Uh, we both hope, I think, that the customer gets something that is uh, to his satisfaction and it's clean and um, he can, like I said, continue with other processes afterwards. So just be happy that it's clean. And, sure. um, you know. <laughs> we both work in an industry where our products are not seen and, and almost nobody outside of our very small circle has any mm -hmm. idea that circuit boards are even cleaned, right? Um, I'm sure you get the same response I get when people ask what you do and you say, you know, you make chemicals to clean circuit boards and they go, oh, do they get dirty? Or I thought they can't get wet. I mean, you know, all, the, all those things. It's a very behind the scenes process, right? Very important, but a very behind the scenes process. Yeah, a lot of people typically ask uh, if we do um, clean circuit boards when they come out of the field, um, then to, you know, let them know that we do it during the manufacturing of the boards. Um, the tough part is really the uh, value adding when you don't see it. If you put a component and put solder paste on the boards, you see it. Um, our processes, they don't see. And um, it's it's truly a very niche industry. But um, if you think of the impact it has, and, and that's sort of what you and I, and, and I think the whole industry who is within the niche of cleaning benefits uh, from is, um, you want to go into an airplane or you want to use a medical uh, equipment and you want it to, to function and you want it to function for a long period of time because typically those things are expensive or you're dealing with matter of, of life and um, you want to rely on them. And uh, then you think uh, and, and realize, I think, the additional value that comes from adding a little bit of cost to the bomb um, is justified. I think the chemical company several years ago, BASF, um, mm -hmm. they ran a series of commercials to consumers, even though no consumer would ever buy a BASF chemical, right? It, right? It's all behind the scenes. And I think their tagline was something to the effect of, uh, we don't make the products you use, we make the products you use make better. better. Right. right. And I think that can be say, the same in our industry. We don't make the products you mm -hmm. use, we make them more reliable. So you don't just roll out of bed one morning and have a, uh, a leading company, right? So mm -hmm. that's a journey. So let's go back in time, we we'll get in our time machine and Go back to, I think it was around 1975, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where your father, right. Oscar, um, started a business. So what, right. what led his, what was his motivation to start that business? What was that part of the journey like, as, as you recall? Well, I start with the goods and the bads. Um, he, he finished his, his degree in chemistry, which was a good. Um, he finished in uh, record time. He was a very ambitious young man. He still is now a few years older. Um, and um, as far as the story goes, because I wasn't here yet, um, I was born in, um, I was in 73, I was born, but um, too young to really know what he was doing. But um, he went to um, Belgium, uh, one of his first jobs, and um, he worked for Procter & Gamble, a obviously very well-known um, and successful company. Um, and as a chemist, he was the product manager for Mr. Clean here in Europe. And um, as a chemist, his job was to create a formulation to um, make the product better, um, maybe like BSF you just mentioned, similarly. And um, so he worked on that for five years, but he couldn't stand the hierarchical way of, of um, making decisions difficult and slow. And he couldn't, he was fed up um, after a while. Um, recognizing though what he's learned and appreciated what he knew after that, um, somebody else approached him. Uh, I, I don't know if it was a friend or a business partner at that point, um, or just an acquaintance, but um, somebody approached him and said, look, um, we have this pot company, stainless steel pots in Switzerland, uh, also a pretty well-known brand here in Europe called AMC. And they were looking for a pot cleaner. Um, so a household care product line uh, that needed improvement. And uh, since he had just worked on almost exactly that 
product line at Proctor, um, he said, sure, that's uh, exactly what I need. And finally, I don't have a boss anymore that uh, tells me what to do. Um, so that was part of his motivation. I think uh, originally as a child, uh, being a um, post-war child, he, the story I knew is that um, there was a friend of his and their father who had a auto dealership and um, that uh, dealership was big and he put a big building up and uh, he told me a couple of times, one of the inspirations for him was to imagine that a person, a human being could put up a building like that. Um, somehow it seemed inspiring to him um, that that was feasible and, and that sort of was that little seed in the back of his mind that, um, hey, um, let's put up buildings and, and make a company and uh, let that be mine. Um, and that combined with the other story sort of leads to why he was ambitious and interested and had skills, marketing skills from Proctor and um, um, chemistry skills from um, his um, you know, degree in education. And like most entrepreneurs, uh, you mentioned he didn't like the politics of you know, corporate lifestyle, right? Uh, and I would imagine he didn't like the drama, he didn't like the politics, he didn't like you know, a, a typical corporate business environment. I think entrepreneurs all have that in common. I think we make terrible employees because we just, you know, we're used to getting what we want and, and we're Correct. used to just clearing out all the obstacles. Uh, speaking of obstacles, what were some of the obstacles? I know you were only a couple years old when the company was founded, um, so you probably don't have firsthand memories, but I'm sure you've heard the war stories at the dinner table, um, probably more times than you care to, right? When I start telling my war stories, everyone who's heard them 30 or 40 times just roll their eyes and you know go, Mike's doing it again. Um, so what were some of the uh, challenges, uh, particularly back as, as you either recall or you recall hearing about in the earlier days of Zestron? Um, well, in the beginning, as you, you've been a, a, um, an army of one and everybody who starts as an army of one, um, you, um, you're tasked with everything, um, obviously, from financial to product development to sales. And, um, you know, every person is a little different in their skill sets. Some are really good at sales and they are not so good at developing products or not as technical. And maybe the next guy is more of a finance person skill set. And um, so in the end, you have to do all of it. And you realize um, that some of the things are not really things you like to do or you're not good at. And um, I recall a lot of uh, stories. Um, I mean, most of the time we talked at dinner or he would share uh, things initially. Um, and um, financing was always a big struggle in the beginning. I mean, he saved a few thousand bucks and um, that was his starting capital. He had a couple other guys in there that at some point wanted money and uh, he didn't have any. Um, so that led to some uh, tension here and there. Um, having one customer, the, the, the company I just mentioned before, uh, led to a struggle of, wow, I can't be dependent on them. I need something else. Um, how can that be that, um, you know, if they don't order tomorrow, I'm on the street. I mean, I, I don't have an income. Um, so um, that was a continuous uh, story that went and still exists in this company to this date that um, you always look for alternatives to build your business units, to add to them, um, to make it more solid and more international, less risk, uh, to not be dependent on banks. Uh, that story, uh, red line. I think everybody faces that and, and everybody at some point runs into a financial situation of some sort. Um, I remember um, a period in the 80s, um, probably company was 10 years old, roughly more or less, and um, the banks um, um, stopped his credit line. It just um, made it due from one day to another and all of a sudden you don't have that money. I mean, if you finance something long term and, and all of a sudden they turn uh, the hose off, I mean, um, kind of tough. And 
um, that was close to his breaking point at that point. Um, because I was a kid, I was 10 maybe. And um, I think the whole family remembered, um, he just would sit at dinner table and stoic, he wouldn't say anything. He was just done. Hmm. I, I think um, so I think we all remember days like that, right? They right. Uh, they're they were scary, uh, but they're they were real. And I'll bet that is part of the ingredients that forged who he is today. Uh, you know, they if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And that's sort of what it is. If you can climb out the hole, you don't want to ever fall back into it. And and you put measures in place, you learn from it, and you try to make it better, be more independent. And um, to this date, I mean, part of why we've come successful i mean it's one little part of it but um we've always been very conservative on the spending and um whatever money we make we save and we put it to the side when we need it for investments and so when times come uh, that we need to i don't know buy a new building or, or start a production somewhere um typically we do it out of cash and, and don't have to ask banks for it and um that takes a long time of endurance and and just um, putting the company first and then and that's one of the the things we've learned all along he and i we always put the company first it's not about me on a monday making a decision because it's it's harry and it's monday no uh, the company will always come first and it's not about a personality or whoever runs the company it's about the good of the company and the responsibility you carry for everybody in here yeah i think that's you know, 75%, I've said this many times on the show, but, you know, quoting the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistic, probably very similar in Germany and anywhere else in the world, 75% of all new business startups are gone by year 10. They fail. 50% by year five. I think it's 30 or 35% by year two. So it's, yeah. it's definitely a high-risk endeavor. And I think there are, as the more I talk to business owners uh, and the more experience I have in business, I start to see a a common denominator for those businesses that are successful and those businesses that are not successful. And on the non-successful side, part of it is, you know, killing the golden goose, so to speak. You mm -hmm. know, you mentioned that, that, you know, you always uh, put the company first. Well, there's a certain, um, I don't know, a little bit of a seduction when a business owner gets their first taste of success. You know, suddenly mm -hmm. there's a little bit of cash flow and sudden, you know, and mm -hmm. you've worked so hard and you need a vacation and it should be mm -hmm. nice to get a new car. And, and, and I've seen it. I've seen other businesses do it. And I think to a certain extent, I did it when I was uh, mm -hmm. newer mm -hmm. in business. You want right. to run a victory lap. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes there's no time to run the victory lap. But, but mm -hmm. you just stop and do it anyway. And, and then you dig out for another couple of years, you know, from your wild exploits and financial exploits. So it's, it's a common, it's a common cycle that leads to mm -hmm. business failure. So to discover that early is definitely a blessing. What was Oscar's, to your knowledge, what was Oscar's vision for Zestron? And has that vision changed over the years, particularly as you took over? And we'll get into how you took over in just a bit, I'm kind of jumping here, but on yeah. the subject of vision, what was it? How has it changed, if it has? Well, I, 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 um, I'm not a big fan of these vision and mission statements because oftentimes there are a lot of, um, lot of words and, and they sound all very similar. Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the most, mostly BS. They're basically beauty pageant speeches, right? <laughs> I, I, I want to solve world hunger and, and have every country <laughs> love each other. Save, save everybody. I, we're not Bill Gates, I guess. We both can agree to that, and he might yes. save the world. But, um, anyway. He has a shot. Yeah, he has a shot. <laughs> <laughs> he might have a realistic shot. 
Um, no, I, I tell you what the real story was. Um, the um, the first set of products were um, also de designated for uh, surface cleaning, as I mentioned, pots, and then uh, you uh, we went into uh, consumer car care and bicycle and motorcycle care because that was. Uh, we were driving dirt bikes as a hobby and um of course when you're 10 and 12 you, you love dirt bikes if you get one uh we had one and um so we're doing that maybe that was a third of the victory lap you just mentioned maybe his his way of having fun with the boys um i had a brother i still have a brother and a sister and, and we all did motocross for um, um many years and um at some point you have to clean those and, and 10 year olds are not really interested in cleaning uh, as you can imagine we'd like to drive them and um, have fun with them but he got stuck with the cleaning and so from cleaning a pot to cleaning a motorcycle it wasn't that far of a stretch and um, he developed the first product um, it still exists in the us although it's not our juice anymore but the brand s100 um, maybe a lot of um, fans who ride harleys they, they know this product name um, it's still market leader here in europe um, hopefully one day we make it back to the us uh, would be nice um, but apart from that, um, that was the first product line and, and seasonal products, um, at least here in, Euro in Europe initially it was, and, and still to some extent it is a seasonal product. Um, in the uh, you know fourth quarter, first quarter, it's winter, uh, typically here, in, especially in Germany. Um, you don't care for your motorcycle or bicycle or your car. You don't polish it, you don't clean it, you don't um, wax it or, or treat it. Um, so he had issues on uh, revenue and on cash in, in, the, in the summer uh, months and, and the fall and, and, the, and the spring. It's more of a summer product. And um, so it just um, chased him for many, many, many years. And, and it just the constant nagging. Sometimes, uh, you know, how um, people nag and, and want certain things and they're very persistent. Um, that never went away. And, um, and that nagging led to him just being curious of what he, else he could do as a chemist, as somebody who cleans hard surfaces. And um, that was just the baseline of it, having that foundation of being able to know what cleans or what residue can be cleaned with what. Um, and at uh, in the end of the 80s, early 90s, um, as we you know both know, some um, changes in the legislation came and, and the uh, fluorinated chlorocarbons weren't allowed anymore. And um, so that was um, sort of an entrepreneurial moment for him, a uh, very successful one, I, I should add. Um, he went to a customer, he read it somewhere in the newspaper that um, uh, those were not allowed anymore. And by the way, they were used for electronics cleaning. He had no idea before, I think, and, and just read it somewhere and uh, said, oh, um, there's surface cleaning, maybe that could lead to something. So he went to a customer, asked them if there was anything else that was recommended, and they all said, no, we don't know what's coming. So he went to his chemist and they talked about the application, the residue, the starter paste and so on. And, and that's what started the first product in, in what we call now the business unit of Zestron. Um, and it led to a very successful uh, journey. Yeah, that's amazing. And that was really the vision. The vision then, once you start that, you, obviously you want to grow it. Um, but if you have you know 5,000 sales or maybe even 100,000 sales, it's very um, bold to say, look, I want to be the global market leader you don't even know all the competition you haven't been around um so it's, it's sort of in the beginning i think it would be uh, a lie to say there was a vision um, there was a will to perform and be successful and have a second business unit i think that was the vision um yeah. and not so much what it was in yeah i uh, it's funny there's a, a very similar uh, track with my company it was the montreal mm -hmm. protocol which was what you were referring mm -hmm. to when the solvents were were banned that were used to clean circuit boards which created a business opportunity um, that's what brought me into the business, uh, and mm -hmm. and um, 
you talk about uh, mission statements and all that. I agree with you 100% that, that most corporate mission statements are crafted by marketing departments, you know, to look good. Mm -hmm. They try and hit every politically correct checkbox, you know, to, uh, in their quest to be accepted by as many you know, consumers as possible. Uh, but I, I think there's also a, a degree of naivety that's almost a, a requirement to start a business because if you really knew all the risks and all of the work and all of the money and all everything, all the energy that mm -hmm. one has to put into a business for rather poor odds of success, um, most people would would just steer away from it. Um, so I think yep. that naivety is good. And, and at least in my case, and I'm curious if this happened in yours, you know, you're highly mm -hmm. educated. Uh, you know how, you know, from a chemistry standpoint, you know, you know how all these molecules work. Um, that doesn't necessarily guarantee a success in business, right? Nope. So that's a whole different thing. And even people who graduate business school, I don't think have much more guarantee of success. There, there's a nope. uh, more of a native approach to business. Um, and, and I, I, at least in my case, I was very grateful that I learned things at the proper time. There was a sequence to be aware of certain things. If I was aware of too much too soon, I never would have started the business. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a sequence in learning and, you know, it, it's, it's quite orderly. And if circumstances or the universe or God or the business gods, whatever, decide that they're going to put you through a, you know, their version of an MBA course, which we've all been through. Um, uh, that sequence is very helpful. It's just like going to college. Mm -hmm. You don't take, um, you don't take higher level courses your freshman year of college, right? You'd, you'd never graduate. You, you, you'd you'd yeah. drop out. So uh, speaking of college, you uh, worked all the way through your PhD uh, at Johns Hopkins. And then you got uh, drafted or you invaded or whatever circumstance you ended up at Zestron Americas. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that journey. Uh, what made you step into the family business? And uh, I think that happened after you graduated with your PhD. So what, what led you there? Uh, what was the motivation? Did your father ask you? Did you ask your father? What was the, what was the combination of events? Well, the first, um, maybe go back a, a few years uh, in, in the initial education. I, um, I was a young uh, man at the time and I decided to um, first, I mean, in school, I, I hated chemistry to be fair. The teacher was terrible. Uh, my dad always faulted our kids for not, uh, us you know, three for not studying chemistry, but because he loved it so much. And, and um, typically what happens, kids don't necessarily do what their parents do. They want to do their own thing. And I always want to do my own thing anyway. So I first went into business i did a bank apprenticeship a system that that you know you can do here for a couple of years when you're young you learn about finance and um, i was fascinated by how business operates and how they operate from a bank perspective at least it was the initial <clears throat> uh, entry into that um, and in school um, i um, really um, I mean, you have sort of electives at the end of um, high school here and the elective could have been chemistry but i, I didn't i had business in english and um, those were the things I had really had fun with. And uh, chemistry, I mean, the teacher was terrible. And then I, had, I was drafted by the, uh, uh, by the uh, I had to go to the army here for a year, a mandatory uh, draft. And um, um, it you know, stuck uh, for a year into, in, in a thing you really don't want to be is, is tough uh, in, a, in one sense, but um, you have time to think about it. And, and the time I had, um, I decided to um, 
challenge myself and say, look, um, you know, it's one thing to not like chemistry in school. Um, it's another thing to, um, you know, study it and then know that you don't like it because studying is, is a little broader than just uh, the few classes you have in school. Um, and um, I was between um, chemical engineering and chemistry and, and business, uh, sort of the um, uh, interest. And um, I looked at my dad and, and like I said, I had a lot of time to think about it and, and he had no say in that or impacted or it was just uh, me pondering in a, in a separate room. I had nothing to do during the army for the most part. Um, so it wasn't very productive from a work standpoint, but productive from a, um, you know, preparation standpoint. And, um, you know, he, he's a chemistry major. He never uh, studied any uh, business. He, he learned it, uh, uh, as you said, by, you know, fault, default and experience and trying and um so i said man if he can start a business um he never had a business course why do i need to do business i, I might as well skip that all, all along and do something technical because technically uh, technical be it chemical engineering or chemistry later on in life it's very hard to uh learn and study and, and get back to get that knowledge it's easier to do it when you're young so i didn't want to completely um discard that and said, look, I'm just give it a shot, three months of it, and then we'll see how it goes. And uh, if I make it, I make it. If not, then I do something else. At least I tried it. So that was the first. And um, yeah, those uh, three months were <laughs> kind, of, kind of tough because um, I ended up in, in, uh, at the university and, and everybody else had these two years electives and I didn't. So sort of a catch up game. And um, I caught up and um, I found some disciplines of chemistry that I really liked. And um, so I started it. So I said, I'll finish it. And then I had the chance to uh, come to the U.S. because I heard you can work in a lab. And here, lab work was sort of limited. Um, professor was very arrogant and typically very, uh, you know, high up there. You couldn't talk to him, no interaction. And the U.S. was all different. Um, so I applied and got into Hopkins and um, um, did that and, and succeeded in that. And, um, you know, at, at night they would have figured out that you could do business class at night didn't have any uh, other things to do at night. So I was bored. And uh, so I started MBA class at night. And, um, you know, obviously, story uh, I just mentioned, I always liked business. Uh, I always liked then chemistry too, something technical, because you can't take that away from somebody. If you have a certain ground basis of, of knowledge. It's, it's really helpful later in life. Um, so I had chemistry and I was doing most of that. And then one or two classes of MBA at night. And I would find all these motivated people who in their spare time, it was voluntary. I mean, night classes typically continuing education. You have people that are highly motivated um, because they would do that in their spare time on their own dime and so on. And um, yeah, I did that and did both of them. And then finally, when I finished, um, my dad, um, you know, he would come over once in a while. I mean, the business was, was started in 96, um, the second business. First business was consumer products, but that uh, for different reasons, long story, um, didn't turn out the way he wanted or was successful. Um, second time around, he came and said, I got another uh, business here and it's uh, failing. And, um, you know, you're just about to finish. Uh, maybe you want to give it a go. And uh, that was sort of long story to explain, but it, it sort of helps, I think, in understanding personalities and, and um, motivation. Um, and so you have your dad come over and, and saying you have a failing business, invested millions into it and it wasn't working. Um, and here I am at, at 28. Not much work experience. Nope, <laughs> no pressure, college. Harry. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's give it a shot. Let's give it three months and see how it goes. <laughs> Same thing. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's tempting to fix something. It's tempting to help your father if he is in dire needs. Um, it's tempting to help a company that probably supported um, your education financially to a large extent, although Hopkins actually paid me. 
which I'm very grateful for, and, and um, we're returning the favor. But um, it was um, it was similar to his coincidence in in, in a different way. Uh, it was a, a different coincidence, but it was not something that was planned. Um, certainly, there was hope on his part when he started a business that at some point somebody in family would be willing and, and able to do it. But it was one day to another. Hey, um, I got a chance. You want it, or you don't want it. Um, otherwise, I close the shop. I'm done. And um, I mean, you know, perspectives of trying it. Um, Sally was was decent, and certainly for a student, it was more than than I expected. I was living on a thousand bucks a month, so anything more was great. Um, and uh, what else could I do? I couldn't make it any worse. I mean, it was about to be shut down. It was nothing to be. Um, I mean, it's only fixing everything I was doing better was making the company better. And um, so I gave it a shot. And that's how the story started. You know, it, I think we learn more from failure than we do from success. And if someone is only successful, we don't know if they're on a lucky streak or if they're yeah. if that's really skill. Uh, I'd love to learn, you know, without giving away any corporate secrets, I'd love to mm -hmm. learn what your take on it, taking a business unit that was failing, arguably failing, and turning mm -hmm. it around to something successful. That, to me, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of takeaways there because mm -hmm. there was a, a way of doing business which was failing and then there was a way of doing business which was successful. So mm -hmm. what are some of the basic, looking back, what are some of the basic components of failure that you were able to recognize and change to turn, not just to make it successful, but to, to change trajectory from, you know, going down to, to stabilizing, to, to uh, start ascending in terms of mm -hmm. success. Well, I ended up um, in a company of, um, it was less than 10 people, a few of the 10 people. And um, some of them, um, you know, you, you get to know in the first couple of days, it might, might take you a week or two uh, to figure out, um, what makes or breaks uh, a business. And so I came into a failing business and, and the revenue wasn't good, um, not sufficient to carry the cost. Um, so your first thoughts come um, to mind and, and you look at the, the HR cost, which was the biggest piece at the time. You begin to you know go out to customers. I, I um, figured if, if we want to be successful, you, you better know what the customer wants and, and you need to hear what you're providing or what you're not providing. Um, maybe a customer will tell us you're great. Maybe a customer will tell us you uh, stink. I mean, your product uh, are no good. Um, whatever feedback they would give me, I was just open ears. I mean, anything I would uh, be able to change for the better uh, would help the company make it. So my back was against the wall. Um, we would have to, uh, I would have to ask for money to pay for payroll. It was, it was, um, something that typically the banks would do and, and the startup would never get money unless you have some investors to back you. So financially, it was okay, not great, but at least um, enough to tie me over for a year or two to, to try to make it better. Um, we couldn't afford salespeople, so um, we had a few engineers, uh, one very dedicated who still uh, just had his uh, 20th anniversary with our company. Um, we would work all day and all night um, to make this happen. And he realized how bad it was. I never specifically told him because I didn't want to share too many internals. I was very um, um, ashamed um, of where we are. And uh, yeah, so um, it, it, it took a lot of um, uh, feedback from outside to figure out what we were doing well and what we're not doing well. Um, out of that um, came new product development um, that would help to capture the needs of the market. Um, 
remind you, this was a European founded US company. So the products we had were U uh, European products. And, you know, when I talked to European guys and said, look, um, customers are complaining about the products they are no good, or they're, you know, they're, they're not what they need. Oh, we don't have the problem over here. They work great. What do you want? And I said, what I want is a product that works and, and this is not it. So, you know, it was a, a, a um, an advantage that I had the same last name. So I could go to the uh, boss of R and D, uh, who is also um, uh, a wonderful person uh, to work with, and and he was, his ambition was to help us solve problems. He he wanted to formulate better products, so I opened a door that was already open, and um, so within probably the first year, we came out with the first new U.S. developed products for the U.S. market and U.S. customers. That was the first big point because we we made products and developed products that were significantly better than the better mousetrap than the competition at the time. So if you have a a product and no sales, so a D for that or an F, um, and uh, then you have a marketing team of one uh, who is probably at best a C to a C minus. Um, it wasn't a, a um, um, it was somebody who worked extremely hard and dedicated his his life to the company basically, but he wasn't a Native American. So I was challenged by not being American. Um, the whole team was not American, with the exception of a few admin staff. Um, so you really had a C team, C minus team, and uh, the one thing that really pulled us, helped us pull off some of the successes and win new customers at, in the very beginning was engineering and product performance. Those two things allowed us to at least change the trajectory of maintaining a sales or even losing sales to winning. Once the sales numbers go up, um, you start, oh, 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 now I can maybe hire a new engineer. Maybe I can hire somebody in product development. Maybe I can even think of a salesperson to help us boost and, and get the, the relationship up. I mean, if you send an engineer out like myself, a technical guy, I know I'm not a salesperson. I'm passionate and I, I know how to sell. But if I see a good salesperson, I know why we pay him a lot of money. Um, they're just different animals. And a technical guy will never be a salesperson, but at least you can appreciate what they what they do. And, and uh, so um, seeing what we're missing and looking and, and reading uh, the competition and learning from them a lot, um, taught us that sooner or later we need a sales, but once you can afford them, great. If you can't afford them, you go as an engineer and you win maybe two out of 10 customers because the other 10, you, you screw up because you're not a salesperson and you say the wrong things, you're too honest, whatever it is, you, you, you're not able to do the same job as a, as a senior salesperson. Um, but you know, two out of 10 is not zero out of 10. So it helps you, it helps you move along. It sure. helps you move forward and, and grow a little bit. So it, it helps you reduce the financial burden, all of a sudden you can carry more of the HR cost, you you, you move towards a, a maybe a more sound P&L. Um, your product development is, is positive and, and brings new spin in. Um, then um, you go out and, and market it and um, and try to use the money you have to at least get the word out. And little by little, it, it, the picture was changing to a, to a more positive one. And, and the same goes for, for everybody who was part of the team. From the initial team that I um, met, um, there's only one person who stuck around and had a wonderful career. Uh, everybody else left. And a lot of people in the beginning, um, when you have a failing company, you recognize the ones who want to be there and the ones who don't. And you, you figure that out within maybe a couple of weeks at the latest. And then you start sorting through that. And then, um, you know, you start sorting through the sales channels. You try to figure out every individual discipline that leads to success and you try to optimize it. And that was, I think, the job of the first five years. You talk about you put 
most of your effort into creating engineering products before you built the sales team, which just makes perfect logical sense. A good salesperson can sell a bad product once, right? Right. And may not get a second chance, but a um, but an average salesperson can sell a great product over and over and over again. So, so clearly cart before the horse, you know, you, you don't want to put cart before the horse. The horse has to be the engineering and the, and the product development and all of that. Now you talk about, you talked about your products were successful in Europe, but the same products here people didn't like in the early days. My, I'm not a chemist, but my understanding of chemistry is molecules work the same way in Germany as they do in the United States or anywhere else in the world. The, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry are global. Um, so that tells me there's a cultural difference or there was some kind of perception when the same products that were working well in Europe weren't working well or they were perceived as not working well here. So uh, I'm curious, you run a global company. You have facilities on different continents in several different countries, which means you're dealing with different types of people, different cultures, different uh, yep. expectations. How much... How long did it take to grasp for you? Your, your father probably figured that out already, but how, how did you personally get your head around all the different cultures and how to be the same company in every country, knowing mm -hmm. you have to actually mold yourself a little bit different uh, or portray yourself maybe a little bit uh, more culturally appropriate, if that's the correct word. Uh, what, what were the challenges in dealing with multiple cultures, multiple currencies, multiple languages, all of that? Well, it begins with a, I think to be fair, with a certain self-awareness, which I certainly didn't have at 28, but you have when you turn older. Um, what you recognize, and, and that was, um, as soon as I began working in the US, you, you sort of, I mean, the US is, is wonderful in a sense of welcoming foreigners, and I had, um, only good things to say about my whole experience. I'd do it again if I um, was given the chance to be um, younger. But um, one thing you also recognize is if you go to a certain state, you better be in a position to relate to the customers and their local um, culture. And the US is, is very broad and, and different. And um, you go to New England, you go to California, you go to Texas, you, you, the customers will be different, obviously. And um, being, I'm, I'm, I'm best case, I'd say I'm half American. I love the US, I'd, I'd move there in a heartbeat, but now I'm, I'm here um, in charge for the entire company. So things have changed in a, in a business personal relationship, but I'm, I'm, I can adapt and um, I've, I've adapted as much as I could, but my wife's American and, and I, <laughs> I know I, um, I'll never be, although I really wanted to, but um, you recognize the, the limitation of not being native. And if you recognize that, that was one of the big milestones, I think, for us as a company before we went international to recognize that you cannot ever send local people around and, and pretend they're supposed to run the, the, the foreign shop. So if you look at our organization now, you call uh, John in China or Dido in, in, um, in Japan or, or James in Malaysia uh, or Ralph here, um, any anyone in senior leadership um, is local and will always be that way. And and that was probably one of the first learning experiences that we cannot send anybody from Germany around and, and pretend you know it better and you know how to run the business. 
Um, so local leadership in the U.S. is U.S., and I always wanted it that way. Um, I was the, the the first and only hybrid, um, I would say, and, and I would um, caution any German or American company to start using their own management in a different country. It doesn't work. So that was lesson number one. Um, and then you begin to appreciate if you're open-minded, and I always was, and I um, always enjoyed other cultures. I mean, my dad... And my mother, they they always encouraged us to go to France, to go to England, go to US as kids, and and be just open your mind. I mean, um, Germany is not the center of the attention. Uh, US isn't either. China isn't either. We're all one global community, and 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 everybody does it differently. And you know, the the some people say, well, we are successful. Well, the Chinese are successful too. The, the Americans are successful. The Germans are successful. Every every uh, state and country and, and personality can be successful in their own right. Um, but there's no way, there's multiple ways to roam. There's not just one way to roam. Um, and um, so you need to allow local management to do it their way and, and have the personality and ability to just not interfere, just judge them by the numbers and the success. And, and that's it. And um, numbers tell you a lot of things and um, not everything. Um, so I, I typically, prior to Corona, I, I typically visited each site once a year just to greet and meet the people, uh, get to know the new ones that started. We're family business, so I, I typically know most of the people that um, uh, we have, um, especially new ones in the last two years I haven't met personally, unfortunately, but I will as soon as I can, I'll, I'll travel again. But I find enjoyment in, in understanding the other cultures in learning other countries, other uh, languages, whatever it is, um, it, uh, it psychs me and it, uh, it fascinates me um, because they are successful in a different way. And you just have to appreciate that instead of judge it. One of the things that is a requirement for running a business is motivation. Without motivation, yeah. you're nothing. Because the, particularly in the early days of a business, and I think maybe even arguably throughout the entire lifespan of a business, uh, there are, are things that suck out your motivation and just circumstances, maybe pandemics, maybe recessions, maybe <laughs> competition, maybe whatever, uh, new government regulation. Um, what, what motivates you? How, as a, as a business owner, do you keep motivated? And, and how do you spread that motivation? Um, let me begin with why I am motivated. And um, I would argue that as a person, you are either motivated or you're not. Um, to try to motivate somebody who's not motivated, good luck. I mean, I've never been successful. I can admit that. Um, my motivation began at Hopkins. Um, to go back a little bit, I mentioned it before. I, I um, had part of my chemi chemistry education here in Germany. Very difficult to interact with professors. They wouldn't give you any time of the day. They just, um, you know, they're not approachable. So with that mindset, I came to the U.S. and, and didn't know any better. Um, but the first year of um, the five-year uh, um, stint or four and a half in my case um, at Hopkins, you were your job was it not only to sit in the class um, to you know learn the material um, that they they were teaching you, but also to um, look for a um, professor to in, interact with a professor to try to get in his group. Because four or five years are lab work, you 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 do research, and uh, for that research you get your your degree. And um, you know, in, in in Germany, the the education system was not focused or turned towards 
challenging you or making you ambitious or, or um, you know, see, weeding you out from the non-performing ones, you could sort of cruise through the educational system with little to no effort, um, which unfortunately, to some extent, I still regret, but um, I was able to cruise uh, through, but it wasn't um, the ambition wasn't created. And, and um, I see the US system being very different and a lot more um, targeted towards that, uh, encouraging learning and, and making it fun and, and seeing what your development can be. That wasn't fostered in the US. Um, so I had two things going for me. And one was obviously seeing what my dad has accomplished uh, at that point in time. And the other one was sitting in um, a class, I think it was organic chemistry. And uh, another student asked me, um, grad student in the first year, he said, what group did you pick? And I said, what do you mean? Um, what, did you talk to any professors? And I said, well, you can talk to professors? Wow, that's interesting. Um, um, okay, um, let me see. And, um, you know, it took a five minutes of a conversation of 10 and, and I realized I was in the back of the line. Um, if you're in the back of the line and you don't have one picked by the time the one year's up, you get your master's, you get a handshake and you're out. And um, that was just, I was sweating. I couldn't sleep. I was, I was just, you know, um, beside myself. I said, I'm not going to fail. And I think that was the moment when I changed. <clears throat> and I, I changed to um, never ever, it's sort of a make or break moment. Um, and at that point, it, it just, everything changed for me. And it changed, I think, retrospect for the better because all of a sudden it was ambition, ambition to perform and to perform and to perform. And that never, never stopped. Wow, that's great. When you first entered the business, or maybe even before you entered the business, I'm sure you had in your head a definition of success. What was that definition of success when you were younger? And what is it today? Well, um, when I was younger, I, I guess let's start at 28. Um, obviously, I'm faced with a failing business, as we discussed before. Um, the initial goal was to turn it around, uh, make it successful. Um, we are now for for many years and, and probably more than a decade uh, profitable. Um, and um, that was um, my first goal. Second goal was to turn it over to US management um, to get me out, um, or at least not be the one who calls the shots in a country that I'm not native to. Um, although I wanted to, but I, you know, took myself out of it. Um, so that was, that was the two first goals for, for the American business, obviously. And there were practical and clear goals and, and reachable goals and obvious ones, um, because that's what needed to be done for establishing the baseline to make this company successful, at least in the U.S. Um, you know, once the U.S. was, um, I mean, the reason, maybe go back one step, the reason we wanted to be in the U.S. is, if you're in Europe and you have in the U.S. a business and you have um, you work on customers back then, and I think I think to still a large extent now, although it's a little changing now. But um, if you go to Asia, you will be asked, "Are you qualified?" And then you'll be qualified in in certain headquarters, and they happen to be in the U.S. and Europe. Um, so the logical step for us as a company was there was a reason to go to the U.S. first was to make it. it to get to a point where you're successful in the US, you sit at the table when a customer makes a decision for cleaning a process. Back then, there were a couple of other US competitors, and they would always end up in Asia, and we wouldn't. Um, so first step was to go to the US. Once we've um, had some you know, light at the end of the tunnel, and we could see that it, it was turning into a successful business, and we were winning more accounts, 
and being able to influence decisions uh, in Asia, where a lot of the volume manufacturing was. Um, then the next goal was obviously to, as quickly as possible, grow it into a global company and, and, and plant ourselves in every possible uh, market where circuit boards are manufactured and become the number one in the, in the world. Uh, had to be the plan because, um, you know, size-wise, at that point, in the beginning, we weren't the biggest. Um, so if you're not the biggest and your competition is knocking in the door, um, obviously you want to gain more market share and, and what better goal is to set yourself than to be the number one. And uh, so that's been our goal and I think we've been pretty good at uh, achieving that. Yeah, I've watched, the, I've watched the journey. It's been impressive. What keeps you up at night? Not much. Not much. Um, talking about learning, I mean, I, um, <clears throat> um, I had a lot of conversation with my father and, and you typically have in a situation like this. And, um, you know, obviously some discussions are not as pleasant as others because he seems to know it better. Sometimes uh, you're the young one and you want to know it better. Um, so there's a lot of that sometimes and um, certainly to some extent we had that. But there's also things that um, if you're open enough, uh, you can learn and you can listen. And you can listen not only to him, you can listen to everybody who's more senior in the company. And I tend to do that. I, I don't um, always know it um, and I don't even want to know it. I just uh, talk to the people that do know it and ask them for that advice. And um, so having uh, the opportunity to, to learn um, from, uh, from others is, is extremely rewarding and, and it helps you uh, to put things in, in perspective. What's been your most satisfying moment in business? Huh. Um, I think um, what is most satisfying is, um, it's hard to put it in one, but since I'm a, I would say a very competitive person, I would say winning competitive accounts. And there's some that um, you lost initially, let's say 10 years ago, due to circumstances and uh, situations at the time, various ones. And um, 10 years later, you win them based on performance and, and good engineering and, and honest people. Um, those are moments that you just um, um, cherish. You just sit back and, and you wish you could pop 10 champagne bottles. You don't. but. Um, have your victory lap, whatever it is, it, it's sort of uh, the moments of um, success or at least late success and, and the persistency. If you if you want to win Olympics or you, you want to be good in a sport, you, you train for many years and, and you can't do that overnight. So those are similar um, comparisons to um, uh, this long-term haul of winning accounts and, and um, having that satisfaction. Um, but going back to one thing you said before, what keeps me, I didn't finish it hundred percent, but I've learned to delegate and I, I listened and I, I learned to let go. And, um, when I go home at night, it's my family. And, um, of course, if, I, if, if someone in the U S or in China calls, I take, take, I picked up the phone and I'm always available. It's not bad, but, um, if you give local people and, and everybody who works for you responsibility to make their own decisions, uh, within reason, obviously not you know, sell the company or, or any of, of that, but um, within reason, they will run and, and everybody who works in a company, I would say the, the, the people who are ambitious and want to accomplish something, they're honored by being given responsibility and be able to decide for themselves. And if you set up the company in, in such a fashion, you can go home at night and sleep and, and nothing wakes you up unless, you know, facility burns down and, and somebody calls you. Obviously, I, I pick up the phone, but um, typically I don't, um, 
I don't um, have any issues sleeping. And uh, so um, that's that's one of those things. And most rewarding thing is if I had to name one or some of the early accounts that we didn't win that we now won or about to win, um, those are just priceless. It's not so much the sales you win. It's sort of finally we've convinced the customer that our product is better. And maybe we had a more reasonable, uh, objective customer to compare and 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 uh, confirm that we had a better product offering. It's it's very frustrating to know you're better in a, in an evaluation, for instance, and then not get the customer because of other reasons. Um, I can cite many others, but you asked me for one, um, but um, that will be my answer. I, I think um, in in my case, and it sounds that if I were to paraphrase what you just said it's this sense of legitimacy you know you you finally get the order not because you discounted your your way into it but because right. the customer realized you were the best choice you know i i i cherish that feeling you know it, and mm -hmm. when you're a brand new company you're there is no legitimacy right you're a, you're right. the new player on the block and if someone mm -hmm. wants to buy your equipment they think they're going to get something out of you because you're the new player on the block. So you pay the dues, you discount your prices, you make no money, you provide way more service than, than, mm -hmm. than you should, uh, perhaps, um, in order to just compete. And then eventually, I think we, we all, if, if we survive long enough, we all hit that, that plateau of le a legitimate product. It, the product earned its way in as opposed to buying its way in. And to me, that is an incredibly satisfying experience to have the world stage look at your products and, and say, yeah, those are best in class. We're going to get it, not because it's cheaper, not because we like, like the salesperson, but the products work. And in our business, yes, relationships are very important, but product performance is more important. You know, like I said, you can sell it one time or you can sell it repeatedly. And the difference between one time and repeatedly is is whether a product is is well designed and performs as expected. What advice would you give, looking back at all these years now of experience um, running a company? What advice would you give for budding entrepreneurs with this pandemic, with uh, the shift in business? Uh, there's probably a few people who have lost their jobs and and are either contemplating jumping back into the workforce or maybe that idea in the back of their head that they've had for 30 years is, is haunting them. So I, I think there's a open opportunity right now for people to um, hit that fork in the road and, and maybe choose the route of entrepreneurship. So what advice would you give to um, anyone considering jumping away from the, uh, the uh, full-time job guaranteed paycheck to the uncertainty of, of business? Uh, in short, I would say do it immediately. Uh, in longer <laughs> words or more words, um, there's nothing more rewarding um, to start your own company than doing it. Um, especially having somebody who tells you what to do. Um, no way. Um, you want to decide for yourself, even if you if it's a rotten decision, it doesn't matter. You, you will have to face the consequences. And um, uh, being on your own, um, is the best feeling that you can have even if it's not going to be the next google or the next facebook it doesn't matter it's your company and you can um, feel it in in so many ways um so that will be my sweet and short and sweet answer i like it do it right away do you think there's an opportunity now 
greater than perhaps in the past for entrepreneurship? Is this, a, is this good timing? <laughs> good timing. If you're procrastinator, you won't start. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the timing matters. The matter is, are you willing enough and able enough to make it, uh, give it your best shot? And if, if the will, just like uh, so many examples I said before, but if the will is there, you don't look at the time. You work every day and, and night, and you want to make it successful and, and make it into your own. Um, there's nothing else like it. Um, so there's nobody needs to motivate you. You will be motivated because it's like having a child and raising it. Same thing. You're committed at that point. Yeah. Yes. And you love your child no matter what. Same, same with business. You love your business no matter, no matter how much it costs you, no matter how much it gives you stress, no matter, you know. Uh, and businesses, I think, like children, they go through troubled teenage years and all of that, right? There's, You're right. It, it's never quite completely stable. Last question, Harry. Uh, what in the world of percentages, percentage mm -hmm. of luck, percentage of skill, what would you rate your experience to be? How much of your success and the company's success was based on luck and how much was based on skill? No, that's a good question. Um, I'd say 70-30 uh, skill uh, or um, ability or willpower or whatever um, criteria. And, and luck always comes, um, I think, when you're giving it everything you have um, and trying as hard as you can because people and customers can feel it. They know you're trying to do the best you can, come up with new ideas, um, come up with new products or, or um, solutions for them. Um, and that excitement, um, you can see in people's eyes. I, I always saw in your eyes, Mike, when you started a company, I could sense that you were the one who was driving the boat. Um, you wanted it to succeed. Um, and you can see it. You can see it in the people who start the businesses. Um, they just, there's no no. You will make it. And, and, and that co commitment or, or focus you have to have, otherwise you will probably not make it. Um, and, then, and then when you work that hard and you want it to happen, then sometimes you have luck and it helps you. But just luck, um, I think the other way around in percentages, I, I would hesitate to say that that will oftentimes lead to success. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And looking at your company, I think I, I would give it a, I agree with 70-30. I think there's an awful lot of skill involved and and no one does this without some degree of luck. You know, sometimes things fall from the sky and just land in your lap and and usually right when you need it most. I do have this uh, philosophy. I call it the sales god philosophy. And this is not a religious mm -hmm. statement. This I just call it the sales god. Uh, and I, I this was proven to me years and years and years ago. It if if you put the work in, if you put the effort in, business will come. It, right. It's like shoveling coal into a, a furnace mm -hmm. to, to run a boiler, you know, for a steam train. If you just shovel coal in, the train moves down the track. And mm -hmm. the irony was I would, I would put the effort in, I would put the work in, and business would come, but not from what I was working on. It would just come from somewhere else. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's just cause and effect. You know, you create this amount of energy, and energy comes to you. You know, and I'm not talking a metaphysical, new agey kind of thing. It's just, I call it the sales god principle, for lack of any other description. If the work is put in and the effort is put in for long enough, success will come. And it may not come from where 
one thinks it will come from. Maybe, you know, you, you work on company A, you know, for years and all of a sudden company, you know, B, C, D, and E all come in. And, um, but that was a result of the effort put in. Well, that's one of the reasons we put so much effort into education. You know, we don't mm -hmm. sell, you know, we don't run ads. Uh, we put um, effort into education. To me, that's just energy into the system, energy into the universe. And, and business comes from that. Sometimes we can't even draw a line between a particular educational effort and uh, this particular customer who, who bought from us. But it's just, I don't know, we make the sales gods happy. And that's what you guys are doing mm -hmm. as well. Um, in fact, I think you guys do... Um, probably more education than anyone in your in your space uh, with with uh, uh, educating customers because educated customers make educated choices and you know, like, like you I consider our company an educated choice I consider your company an educated choice uh, and you know you, you can only talk about how pretty your bottle is and how you know how nice the fragrance is for so long at some point people have to understand what separates a good product from a less good product and it's yep. you know i think that's what separates a commodity product from a value-added product right anyone can sell a commodity 100 percent. all right harry uh this has been a long time coming I've, I've wanted to talk to you we i did a similar interview with you for smta a year mm -hmm. or two back and and that uh, kind of wet my appetite to get a little deeper on this show so i really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and uh, talking to me and my audience about your journey with Zestron. And uh, I find it very inspiring. And I've learned a lot from you over the years. Uh, you and I have had a very in interesting relationship over the years. I think we were both young and, uh, dare I say, arrogant. At least I was. And um, you know, when we're building our businesses, we, we are bulls in china shops. And sometimes we break a few dishes. But I'm happy we were able to glue those dishes back together and, and become friends and, and, uh, and colleagues. And, uh, and, and even our competition, I, I'm a big believer, our competition, I'm grateful for our competition, and I'm sure you are too, in, in the context of um, they help legitimize what we do you know, as an industry. Um, they're all, you know, they all have the same goal of making products more reliable. Um, they put, you know, they feed the sales gods as much as we do. And, um, and that just is good for the entire industry. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for competition. It keeps us sharp. Uh, it's, it does, you know, push the ego button from time to time for me. But, you know, it's healthy. It's healthy ego. And it's, if it weren't for competition, we'd be sitting on our laurels. And, and I don't think we would have ever created a better product, you know. The, that, is, that is very well said, Mike. Uh, I'm so grateful we have good competition, strong competition. We've learned so much from them, and I think they from us. And in the end, what both of us or whoever uh, the, comp uh, the, the competition is, what, what the suppliers did, they provided the customer a better product because you, you sort of aspire to be as good as them. They aspire to learn from you. It goes back and forth like a ping pong uh, game. And at the end, um, the quality gets better. And, sure. and that means the customer is going to have a better service, a better product, um, and a better offering, and then uh, we all win. And, and that's sort of how I see it. So I agree 101% with you. If, if you're not encountering enough competition, you become complacent. Absolutely. And that's the end of it. That's the beginning of the end. Yep, absolutely. Well, Harry, this has been fascinating and insightful, uh, both. So thank you so much for all the time you've given. I'll let you go so you can 
have dinner. You're in uh, you're in Germany. I'm here in California. I'm just starting my day. You're wrapping yours up. So, uh, I, are you at your office right now in Ingolstadt? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, beautiful building, by the way. Anyone that happens to be in that part of the world, um, in in our industry, definitely take a tour. It's a, a very impressive facility and, and, and campus, I would even say. So, uh, well, thanks again, uh, Harry. Uh, continued Appreciate success, it, and uh, look forward to actually seeing you at some point in the near future. I'm here. Let's All have right. dinner and a beer. That that I'm in. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Look forward to it. Yeah, me too. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Concept to Creation podcast. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, please be sure and subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and virtually wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this in the car and you would like to see the video version of this, as soon as you get home, as soon as you get back to the office, be sure and search for us on our YouTube channel, the Concept to Creation YouTube channel. When you're on the YouTube channel, be sure and hit the subscribe button and hit that bell icon so you'll be notified of new episodes as soon as they're released. We do release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Living free and I was meant to be free, meant to be free.